This time on Inside a Mountain, I take a walk with writer Tom Chivers, author of London Clay, Journeys in the Deep City. The book is a quest to find the capital's lost ancient rivers which lie beneath our feet. The Ephra, the Westbourne, the Walbrook, the Peck, the Ambrook. Like all great quests, there are personal trials and tests, and there's even treasure at the end. So come mudlarking on the foreshore of the River Thames with us, walk inside a sculpture, and descend seven metres below ground to find an eerie Roman temple. Tom has excavated his material with forensic skill, but he writes with lyrical sway. And in his odyssey to find London's lost rivers, he gets excited about things that most of us don't even notice. Do you want to do some drain hopping? Because I think, I think there might be some drains. Drain hopping? Yeah, just looking at some of the drains. Drain hopping sounds Manholes. very exciting. What's just, that mean then? I know, I made it up. <laughs> <laughs> just, just looking at drains, basically. Right, let's look at some drains then, something I've never done in all my life. Yeah. Tom's book is a paean to a city's past and an excavation of his own. His vision of our history is not of a series of neat layers, starting with the present at ground level and descending like a lift in neat slices backwards in time. He sees a past that's continually bursting out through the surface, forcing its way up through cracks in the ground to tangle with the present. Today we're hunting for the ancient River Woolbrook, and tracing its subterranean path via Liverpool Street Station, the Bank of England, Cannon Street Tube and the river. For eight years, he's been guiding himself with the same Street Finder map, colour-coded and cross-referenced. Um, every time I open it now, it a little bit falls off, so I think, I think we've lost Hammersmith, unfortunately. Oh, Hammersmith has died a death. Yes. Um, it's like lace almost, isn't it? But it's got the most elaborate felt tip <laughs> all over it. What's it? You've yeah. got orange and yeah. then a sort of fluorescent yellow and green and then a dark green. What is this colour coding? Well, I started with the Lost Rivers and then I decided that you couldn't put on the Lost Rivers without understanding the geology of London. So I managed to find a brilliant website called the British Geological Viewer uh, on, on the British Geological Surveys website that allows you to see all of the geological layers underneath the city and I started to trace them onto the street map. Now, you know, ma maps of London's geology exist, maps of London's lost rivers exist, but by doing this, by kind of getting down and dirty with it and, and also getting really close to the street names and to the, my understanding of the city as it is, stories started to emerge where, uh, where the geological layers aligned with, with features that I was familiar with. Um, and suddenly the story of London's development kind of pinged out of the map. And so every chapter in London Clay is based in some way on, on this map. I like this really scribble black bar yeah, with a yeah. big circle and it says yeah. Peck, which is one of the rivers, of course, isn't yeah, it? The Peck uh, yeah. of Peckham. Absolutely. What so I've, what's what, this circle what for? Circle. You look like you got really excited <laughs> with that it's circle. A, it's a branch of Greg's. Oh, no. oh. <laughs> talk about prosaic. I know. Well, it's a branch of Greg's, which I believe is at the confluence of the River Peck, which comes down from, as the name suggests, Peckham, with another um, sewer or stream called the Earl Sluice. Oh, thank goodness. It wasn't because you were seeking a vegetarian sausage roll it, it at It wasn't, point. no, thank no, no. Thank goodness for that. I thought, <laughs> where's the poet gone in you? Exactly. Actually, on the subject of poetry, I was going to ask you this, Tom. 
You make a really clear distinction in the book. You say, I'm not a historian, I'm not a geographer, but I have a poet's eye. And of course, poetry is your background. How do you think the two things come together in this project? Uh, I don't write poems anymore, so a lot of my kind of poetic training, if you like, has been diverted into writing this book. Um, I also think there's something about um, there's something about poets being willing to embrace the unknown. Um, Keats, of course, has that famous idea of negative capability, um, and I think I've, I've perhaps tried to apply that in writing London Clay. I've, I've, I've gone on journeys to write the book, and I haven't quite known what I'm going to get at the end of them. You seem to signal in the book that, that in your past there have been moments of sheer rage and fury and upset and grief, obviously, at the loss of your mother when you were only 13. Is there any sense of resolution now that you've done this archival work on, on your own past, you've dug through your past, you've dug through London? Is there any kind of accommodation that you've reached or is grief always there? I think it's always there. I mean, I, I use this metaphor in the book of grief being like one of these lost rivers that I'm trying to find. You know, you can bury it, you can, you can put it under tarmac, uh, it, can, it can dry up, but it's still there, it's still gonna leave a mark, it's still gonna leave a trace in the landscape. And I think that's the same with, with grief and with trauma. Um, I, I never saw this project as something that would resolve anything, whether that's from my own past or whether that's from uh, the history of London. London is completely unknowable, it's so vast and the history is so vast. And I have only just, scrape the surface of it. But I hope that in doing so, I've revealed some stories that are interesting, that are informative, and, and that perhaps spark imaginative journeys in the readers. These imaginative journeys have a very particular soundtrack, the constant tooth-juddering grind of drills, hammers and saws, as London perseveres with its interminable mission to reinvent itself and build upwards, a feat of reverse archaeology. Tom and I arranged to meet inside a sculpture, Richard Serra's 17-and-a-half-metre-high monument, Fulcrum. Vast steel slices slouching casually against each other, without strap, bolt or hinge. Public sculpture a spectacle, with what feels like enough potential risk to make entering the interior space feel bold, just right for the start of a pilgrimage. This uh, amazing sculpture, Fulcrum, um, it stands at the top of a, of a valley. Uh, it's a river valley that you can't see anymore, really, uh, through London. It's the valley of the Walbrook stream. And uh, the Walbrook is one of the many tributaries of the Thames that has disappeared. And uh, I write about it in my book, London Clay. And I made a journey, I made a number of journeys, obsessive walking, really, around the Walbrook Valley. Mostly I started from a bit further north up in Shoreditch, um, and the name Shoreditch means sewer ditch, um, so it's named after the Walbrook when it was used many years ago as a sewer. Um, but here we are in the city. If you look at a geological map of London, this is where you can actually see the Walbrook stream leaving a kind of finger of um, alluvium, alluvial deposit, silt basically, um, in the gravel terraces of the Thames. It's fascinating reading your book because there's this craving that comes through so strongly that you want to peer in, clamber down, get inside, look beneath. And it becomes this kind of obsession quite clearly in the book that somehow you've got to see 
what happens if you peel away what's on top? Even with that sculpture that we've just been standing inside, you visualise it in the book as not something rising up into the skyline, but something that kind of pierces the ground and is potentially a telescope that looks down into the ground. What is it about that peeling off of the layers, that kind of palimpsestic approach to landscape that, that drove you? Well, it's a hard question to answer, but what I can say is I'm distracted right now by looking at these manhole covers. <laughs> and we've just been walking for the last 20 seconds or so along a line of manholes, and that does trace a sewer. Whether that is the sewer that the Walbrook now flows into is something of a moot point. But you're right, I'm, I am drawn to thinking about what's beneath our, our feet. Um, I've always been interested in things that are invisible. There's a real mystery, a kind of imaginative power um, to things that you can't see but that you know are, are there underneath us. And, and London's history is just kind of compacted into the ground, archaeologically speaking. Do you know, I could tell you're a bit distracted as we were walking along because you suddenly start your shoulders hunched up and your eyes started to be glued to the pavement. And I, but I couldn't see what you could see until you pointed out that there were manhole covers. Yes. But there's this amazing moment in your book when you're so... This is after you visited your mother's grave. Yes. And you're so craving to somehow have a sense of the unseeable. It's a very moving passage, actually, in the book. But you actually lie down flat on the road to sort of listen to the manhole covers. Obviously yes. you check for traffic first, but you lie <laughs> down on your front just to hear what's underneath. I think a lot of my interest in buried rivers and that whole hidden landscape beneath the streets of London comes from growing up in South London on the banks of the Lost River, Ephra. Uh, of course, there are no banks as such anymore, and I didn't know about this river growing up, but I, I found out about it much later. And um, what I didn't realise was in the middle of this, this road, Hexham Road in West Norwood, where I lived for a couple of years with my mother before she passed away, the River Ephra flows right down the middle of that, that street. I return one last time to my mother's grave. I walk back down St Maryat Hill in the dazzling sunlight. I sense something moving up ahead. I stop, and then my heart stops. There is a shape on the path, and it is sitting right in front of the grave. An orange-brown blur, something feral, untamable, a spirit of the place. I fumble in my pocket, and it turns, sees me with its clever eyes, and steals away into the trees. A fox. I trace the Ephra downstream, by instinct alone, and find myself back at the terraced house I shared with my mother in her final years. A loft extension has been put in, and the scrappy little garden much refreshed. Round the back, by a row of sullen garages, where I used to practice skateboarding every evening, I find a metal disc sunk into a pavement slab to mark the buried river. I walk into the middle of the road, check for traffic, and lie down on my front. I can hear it straight away. The rush of a river, like radio static, like the hiss of a tape that has come to an end. The tarmac is warm against my skin. And then, in the background, I make out a deeper sound. Something banging in the darkness. A sluice, perhaps, forced open by the weight of water falling downriver.
I was fascinated by what it was that you said you were doing in the book. And I then compared it with what it was that you had done by the time that you'd finished. And it seemed to me that there were, there were two entirely different things. So at the beginning of the book, you talk about this craving to find out what lies beneath the surface of a city. And you're insistent that you have to do that on foot. You have to walk it. But by the end of the book, actually what it really has become is a kind of self-excavation. And there's almost a sense of surprise in you as you realise, actually, I've just been telling a story. And that's what matters. And it really means something. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that's absolutely right. I had this sensation maybe halfway through or two thirds of the way through writing this book of the need to write more and more deeply about about my own loss and my background and um, I suppose it all comes down really to you know you can throw as many geological maps and you know hydrogeological surveys um, at, at understanding the city but really we understand the city emotionally you know we, we walk a place we feel it we have our roots we have our our little areas now particular personal memories and and I found that those memories for me were layering up in the same way that the geology layers up beneath beneath the streets and I wanted to as you say excavate those alongside trying to understand in a factual way how how the city is developed determined by its geology and what is it about those in-between places then in that sort of seeking for yourself in the writing yeah and the rewriting of your story for yourself. There's a point at which you talk about the, the, the craving to, to, to be in between that thing that's been discovered that once was splendid, say a Roman temple. And obviously the end of that journey is the restoration of the Roman temple, because that's what we do, we make good again. But actually the, the craving you seem to have is that, that middle moment when it's still a ruin, but has not yet been restored to a kind of future rather neatened ruin. What, what is it about that middle bit? Gosh, yes. Um, I think there's this real sense as you're walking through the city of, of being haunted, of, of the, the past haunting the present. It's not that you, it's not that you imagine the, the, the past as a kind of fully realized reality any more than you imagine the present to be a reality uninformed by the past. It is in this kind of um, transitional state, if you like. And there are lots of parts of the city where I feel that this sense of the slippage between the past and the present um, are, are felt really keenly. Some people have described these as, as thin places, um, but I think for me, it feels thick. It feels like the air is thick and charged. Thick and charged. For a man obsessed by what lies beneath, even the sewers are exciting. Hence the drain hopping adventure that Tom promised me. It turns out that drain hopping means standing in the road and peering into grates and grills. And he grades sewers like other people review hotels on TripAdvisor. It's not a great sewer. <laughs> it's, it, here's, I think it's this one here, actually. This one here should be down to the sewer. Yeah, yeah you can, can you see? Oh, well, there's a car coming, Charlie, so we better just step back. Oh, that's um, right. We don't want to get, yeah, we don't get run over. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> so here we're standing above this tiny little grate in the middle of Cocktail Avenue. And this sewer down here, we can actually see it, can't we? We can see the, the water shimmering there. Um, there's definitely running water down there. And I suspect this is probably the sewer that the Walbrook 
currently flows into. If you can say that it flows at all, because the sewerage system completely changed the kind of hydro geology of London. So when you see something like this, you know, somebody might say, oh, that's the Walbrook sewer. No, I'm not sure. Um, but it's a sewer and it's definitely running. And that's got to be what, 20 feet down? Yeah, at least. I mean, it's just a deep, dark chasm straight down into the earth. It could go on forever, as far as <laughs> I can tell. Absolutely. So just talk to me. Obviously, you've got an obsession with sewers. I think anyone <laughs> listening to this will have worked that out already. Yeah. Just explain the mechanics of river plus sewer. So the, the, the hidden rivers, the lost rivers that you're seeking in the book, the Ephra and the Peck and the Walbrook, what was done to them to somehow sort of gather them in and channel them through to sewers? What was the point of doing it? Well, the rivers have always provided um, two almost paradoxical things. They provide us with, with life-giving fresh water to drink, um, which is why the Romans put their city here, in where the city of London is now, between these two gravel hills with the River Walbrook running between. But of course, the, the river has always also been used as a sewer. Um, you know, for, for millennia. Um, and the Walbrook was actually bricked over by the Romans or perhaps in the early medieval period. So um, it, it's been, it hasn't been a natural stream for a long, long time. Um, but most of London's lost rivers, so-called lost rivers, were bricked over in the Victorian period in the 1860s um, by Joseph Bazalgette, who created this incredible plan for amalgamating all of the Thames tributaries um, into this huge sewerage system, which is still the sewerage system that carries around most of the waste that Londoners produce, um, certainly in, in the middle of London. Uh, and then as the, as the sewers come down towards the Thames, they're met by um, new sewers that he built, which are called interceptor sewers, and they literally intercept the sewage running down from the rivers and the interceptor sewers carry all that waste from the rivers uh, east towards holding tanks and sewage processing facilities. In your book you make the point, and this, this is of course absolutely true, that in, in Victorian times it was far safer, and everybody did, drink beer because yeah. the water itself was more than likely to be polluted, so beer was a kind of safer option. Absolutely. Well, you remember um, uh, the, the, the great stink uh, in the 1850s. I mean, that was, um, that was a contributory factor to Joseph Bazalgette designing the sewerage system because uh, London was an absolute stench pit. Uh, I mean, that, the, 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 the House of Parliament, the, the, the um, curtains they had on the windows of the House of Commons had to be covered in this kind of lime solution in order to take the smell of the stinking sewage from the river out of the chamber. I mean, it really was in a state, and of course, cholera was also rife. So sewerage is, is so important for the, the general health of London. When I was researching these various rivers, it, I was always really struck by by um, th these paradoxes where, for, for example, there's a famous painting um, in the style of Canaletto of the entrance of the River Fleet, painted from the Thames. And it's extraordinary because the artist makes it look like a Venetian canal. It's very beautiful, it's got a stone bridge over it, it looks tranquil and gorgeous. And we know that at that time, the river fleet was not gorgeous and tranquil, it was full of waste. And, you know, uh, Daniel Defoe at the time was writing about dead dogs being thrown into the, into the sewer of the, of the fleet. Um, so in a way, these two things, they are paradoxes. You know, they create a paradox in us. We're drawn to the rivers as these life-giving kind of romantic places, um, but ultimately we use it for the more practical purpose of getting rid of what we don't want to see. 
the Thames, that paradoxical river, will be our final destination. Tom is a licensed mudlarker and will be hunting for treasure. But the thing about mudlarking is that half the time it produces a plastic doll's leg, the lid from a thermos flask, or a dog lead. So, as an insurance policy, Tom has brought with him some of the treasures that he's found in the past. And Token House Yard is the perfect place to stop and look at them. We've just walked through this incredibly atmospheric, almost Dickensian alleyway leading from Coptall Avenue through to Token House Yard. And you can see the Bank of England just over there, that huge wall. That is the side of the north side of the Bank of England. So we really are in the heart of the City of London now. Um, and Token House Yard has an interesting history um, because the Token House that stood here from the I think 1630s, I think it was in the reign of Charles I, the Token House was a place where you could come and exchange tokens for legal currency. And tokens were these um, coin-like objects that were used as currency when there wasn't a lot of low-denomination coins around. Um, and they were actually minted by individual tradespeople, so publicans, grocers, uh, and so on. Um, and you sometimes find them in the River Thames, and I've found one myself. Um, and so it's really exciting being here and imagining that, you know, when somebody had got 15 or 20 of these tokens, they could bring them here and get a, you know, a legal tender coin. But how did that work then? You just decided that you were going to make yourself some tokens, then they equaled money. This sounds very suspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, and, and it was outlawed at various points. In the 1670s, it was outlawed, um, and a whole load of new copper coinage was brought in. But the idea was, you know, back in the day, um, monarchs and governments wanted to produce coins that had the real value of the metal uh, in, in them. Um, but of course, due to inflation, uh, you know, as the years go by, you'd have to be creating coins of really, really tiny, tiny size. Um, so eventually, you know, they realised you had to just create copper coins. Um, and, and that's really when, you know, individuals started coming in and producing their own. Because can you imagine if you went to buy, um, you know, a loaf of bread and you only had a £20 note? It'd be really annoying. Um, so this was the kind of solution by individual merchants. They would, they would be handing out these, these coins as change, um, but eventually you'd have to go and, and, and you know, uh, get them all exchanged for proper tender. So the one that you found when you were mudlarking by the river, I mean, you must be thrilled to find it, but how old do you think it is? Well, this one almost certainly dates from uh, the Commonwealth, so Oliver Cromwell's protectorate, um, because during that period, there was a, a real lack of low denomination coins, and that was the kind of big period of flourishing of tokens. Um, and my one is, shall I get it out? Yeah, go yeah, on. It's in my bag. bag. Yeah, yeah, of course. Oh, you've got a mudlark bag, oh, yeah. tools, <laughs> some kind of digging device. And wet wipes, very important. <laughs> wet wipes. And gel, I expect, is pretty yes. important. Scrubbling around in the mud. Wet wipes, good for cleaning toddlers' bums and mud from the Thames off your hands. <laughs> so here is my very, very, very small. Oh, look at that, it's tiny. It's tiny, isn't it? It's the size of a little fingernail. So I've got two here. This is a Charles I rose farthing, probably minted in the 1640s. So that's proper legal coinage. Although it was, it was not minted uh, by the government, they actually they basically sold leases or agreements, contracts, to uh, various noblemen to produce these coins for them. But this here is the token. 
as you say, it's absolutely tiny. Um, and this token on one side, it's very hard to see, but on one side, it has some initials. I'll just turn it around. K, A and E. So that would be the name of the person who decided to create it at equal money? That's right. K would have been the surname, A would have been the name of the, uh, the, the bloke, and E would have been the name of his wife. Oh, this is lovely. I found this last week. What's that? It's a medieval button. No. Yeah. So that's Sorry, not a medieval. Lozenge. Tudor, apologies. It looks like a, a little Tudor. miniature lozenge-shaped pill, like a kind yeah. of antibiotic. <laughs> it does, yeah. Or antibiotic with a little stalk underneath. Yeah, this is, this is the, called the shank, and it's, um, you can date these by, by the size and, sh and shape of the shank. So when I saw it, 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 you know, it didn't look particularly exciting, but I knew, my God, that's old um, because of this. So yeah, this, is, this, could, this could date from the time of Shakespeare. Shakespeare's button. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Mudlarkers are a very particular tribe, although they don't always know it. It's something which Tom worked out for himself whilst trudging out the miles and miles of walking research for the book. An open-top bus judders down Horse Ferry Road, the way to an ancient crossing of the Thames. A lone tourist in a bright pink poncho eyeballs me from the upper deck. It's raining hard now. Weirdo, I think, then step away to inspect the flooded light well of an office block. The hypocrisy is obvious. I have become one of them, haven't I? Those men, and they usually are, who wander our cities in search of the urban weird. Guardians of arcane trivia. Weekend explorers, obsessively travelling the edges of authorised culture. Some call themselves psychogeographers, though I can think of other names. The Scottish nature writer Kathleen Jamie coined a term that might fit, the lone enraptured male. And talking of lone enraptured males, how could we forget Sir John Soane, designer of the Bank of England, a monument on the course of the River Walbrook? Sir John Soane is a fascinating character. Um, I mean, this structure here, Tivoli Corner, was built in 1805. And in many ways, Sir John Soane is the kind of um, archetypal uh, imperialist. And um, so much of central London, built during you know, the height of the British Empire, uh, is designed to look like Roman stuff because you know Britain wanted its own empire to emulate the Roman Empire, like so many other empires throughout history have done. But he's also weird. He's, he's this kind of neurotic character. He created, um, he commissioned um, various, very strange artworks, including an artwork of um, the Bank of England, his own creation, with the entire kind of top sliced off as if it's in ruins, which, what, over 100 years later, was actually enacted during the Blitz when the Bank of England was, was hit. Um, and he also created paintings of all of his buildings that, that he actually designed and were built all in one landscape this kind of romantic picturesque landscape but you imagine all of his buildings crammed in um, and then he created one uh, with a landscape of all the buildings he designed that were never made and i just love that he's such an eccentric that's just one of the fascinating things about london clay it's full of the evidence of our attempts over the centuries to leave our mark, to construct monuments, to undo, redo, outdo. But Tom's writing resonates with those things that can't be measured. Faith, 
the imaginary myth. We pass Sir Christopher Wren's church, Sir Stephen Woolbrook, named for the river of our quest, and slip inside. I wanted the book to be, to be based on geology and historical facts and good research about the history of the city, but I also wanted to hold in the other hand all of those things that are unprovable, that are not scientific, like faith and urban myth um, and the way that things make us feel, and to give both of those approaches to writing about London a kind of equal value in the book. Um, so yes, my, my um, Catholic faith does emerge a little bit in the book, and I suppose it also is related to the idea of, of, of things that we cannot see, um, but knowing in our hearts that they are there. That makes me think, just looking in the corner of this church, the things we can't see. There's a lot that we can't see here, other than we're very, I think, responsive to the atmosphere in here. But in the corner over there, there's some really substantial cracks in the wall. And there's somehow the sense of atmosphere that we can't see, but actually those cracks are something about what lies beneath, pushing its way up through. There's something under here doing something to the substance, the materiality of this building. What is it, do you think? Well, I mean, the bedrock of London is, is clay, and clay is this very kind of pliable material. It, it shrinks and expands depending on water content, and uh, all of the development that we see in the city, all these huge new tower blocks going up, they're all having an effect on the kind of um, underground uh, shapes and movements and dynamics of the city. And we see in, in old buildings like, like this Wren Church and Stephen Warbrook, we see evidence of that subsidence. Um, in a moment, we're going to be going across the street into a brand new development, but in which is a very ancient ruin. And that development um, almost certainly would have caused some of that subsidence that we see in the church. What do you think of uh, the theorist uh, Pierre Nohar's great phrase? He talked about the lieu de mémoire, the memory sites, those places that kind of resonate with past and present and potentially even future, and a kind of affiliated idea that when we talk about time passing, it's actually not that time is passing at all, it's just that we're passing by it. Yeah, this idea of these, um, these kind of particular sites where, um, where we experience um, memories um, in a profound way. Uh, I think it, you know, it connects with the idea of liminality or of thin places as some people call them. A lot of the time when you actually deconstruct these places there's nothing particularly supernatural or magical going on. Um, it's often just the reuse of spaces for practical reasons. If you think of places like um, well, where we're sat right now in this church which is a Wren church um, built over a late medieval church which was opposite an early medieval church um, that was probably all related to some kind of Roman you know, uh, sacred space. You know, so it's that reuse of, of, of a place for the same purpose. There's nothing particularly supernatural about that but that doesn't invalidate our feelings that there is. Um, and I think that's really important for me that, again, that we hold these two things in the same hand. Roman sacred space. Our odyssey has that too. We cross the road from the church and enter the European headquarters of the financial services empire Bloomberg. Seven metres below the building lies the Temple of Mithras, found in the 1950s, but for much of the recent past, packed into boxes a ruin waiting to be brought back to life. It's an astonishing place, thick with the aura of its ancient past.
I can hardly believe that we're actually sitting in a Roman temple, but 30 feet below ground? I have no idea this was even here. What are we looking at? It's an absolutely magical space. We're seven meters below the street here. We are looking at the remains of a Mithraeum. A Mithraeum is a Roman era temple to the god Mithras, who is a, a, a deity borrowed from the Persian pantheon. Um, and we have to return ourselves, if you like, to to Roman London when, you know, before Christianity had really taken off in the Roman Empire, and Mithraism was one of many cults that were uh, that were worshipped um, in the empire at the time. Four hundred Mithraeum have actually been discovered across the uh, the Roman Empire, and um, it, it, in many ways it looks like a small church, a chapel. Um, so you know you enter into a kind of nave structure, and at the end there is an altar. Um, but there isn't a cross or anything like that. Instead, there's something called a toroctony, which is um, would have been originally a marble frieze of the god Mithras performing the kind of central um, moment, if you like, of Mithraism, which is his slaying of the astral bull. <laughs> So how important is the Lost River of Walbrook to, to this particular temple? Do they have to go together? Yeah, the Mithraea were often sited on the banks of rivers or near a water source, partly because there was some kind of ritual. We don't quite know exactly what it was, but there was a ritual related um, to a moment in Mithras's life called the Water Miracle, in which he is said to have fired a, an arrow at a rock and water had come out of the rock. And you can actually see um, just here on, on the edge of the, uh, kind of near the, what looks like the apse of, uh, of the Mithraeum, there's a little uh, well, kind of square well surrounded by wooden um, platforms and, and it's believed that that is actually, that was filled with water from the River Walbrook. So yes, the Lost River and, and this incredible ruined temple do go hand in hand. There's something prosaic about the temple's recent past, packed into cardboard boxes, apparently unwanted. But that's the funny thing about past, present and even future ruins. What we choose to value and when. And what will be selected from our present to be restored in thousands of years' time. It's an inevitably mournful thought. Finally, descending steep metal stairs to the River Thames, we find monumental shipping containers filled with present-day rubbish destined for landfill. So finally, Tom, we've reached the river and we're certainly going downhill now, but down the steepest steps covered in broken glass. Yeah, we're very lucky it's not covered in anything else because sometimes these stairs down to the river can be covered in the most gloopy mud and uh, it's very easy to slip over. So yeah, just watch your, watch your step as you come down here. You can see Shakespeare's globe in the distance um, and then down here in the foreground you can see this rubbly beach. So what you'll find down here are a lot of oyster shells, uh, a lot of pottery, a lot of roof tiles and uh, occasionally some other kinds of treasures. I can immediately see here there is a piece of green pottery, green glazed pottery that is probably Tudor. No. Yep, that's Tudor. How can you tell? Green glaze and the fabric, it's very kind of thick and crumbly and yeah that's almost certainly Tudor. We've been here 30 seconds and you found a Tudor artefact. I know in your terms a piece of pottery is probably not thrilling, but from my point of view, that's incredible. Yeah, there's, there's so much down here. There's a lot of bones as well. Can you see that? Animal bones. 
this would have been the waste from butchery. So, you know, that could God, date. That's a jaw and a half. It really is, isn't it? Oh, it's still got a back tooth attached. Yeah, what do you think that is? Cow? Sheep? That's a bit big for a sheep. Yeah, it does, isn't it? I think let's go cow. <laughs> that's definitely a cow. Uh, this is the other thing you see a lot of down here is pipe stems. <gasps> These are the cigarette butts of the past. No. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this pipe stem, this would have been, you know, could have been up to sort of that long. And would have what, had a, sort of two foot long? Yeah, easily, like, well, yeah, maybe not quite two feet, but like, you know, some of the really long ones, uh, the church warden pipes they're known as, um, could be very long. And um, yeah, pipes were smoked by Londoners from the 1580s uh, all the way up to, you know, mid 20th century. But these really are the fag butts, the cigarette ends of their time. And uh, if you're lucky as a mudlark, you'll find complete bowls. We might find one today. Um, I've never found a complete pipe, as in the bowl, the stem, all the way to the end. But I've got lots of bowls. Some of them are decorated, um, you know, going back to the 1600s, 1700s. Um, they're very common for sure find. But, yeah. And what was it about a one and a half foot long pipe stem, for goodness sake? <laughs> yeah. What was that? Showing, think, showing off? I think somebody's trying to prove something to somebody. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. From when I take people down to the foreshore, is, uh, you know, who don't mudlark, is I always want to kind of prove that there's an amazing stuff down here. So it's like the pressure is on. Oh, you've got the burden of responsibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look at me. I'm, I'm, over here? I'm a really easy audience to please. You found a bit of Tudor <laughs> yeah. pottery and I'm yeah. sold. Yeah. A little skinny bit of pipe stem and exactly. I'm, whoa, exactly. treasure. Yeah. So if we just come down here, this is, this is an area where I have found stuff before. What's also here is the round metal gate which marks the outflow of the lost River Walbrook. It's the end of our Walbrook Odyssey, which makes it all the more resonant that our journey should end with a holy grail of sorts, treasure. I think I found something, possibly. Really? Possibly. What do you find here? Can't be. I think it's a token. I think I think this is a token. That's amazing. Let's have a look. You can see that. Can you see the on the edge? You can see just the letters. Yeah, I can. We need to clean this up. I'm pretty sure it's a token. That's amazing. What would be down here? Ten minutes. How many tokens have you found in your life? So this is this would be number. If this is a token, this would be number two. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> it might be a hammered coin, but I I think it's probably a token. That's very exciting. I'm going to try and put some water on it and see if I can clean up some of this crud that's on, on it. Or it might need a bit of electrolysis water treatment with electricity, which will help to um, unsettle the bits of corrosion. Basically, that just looks like a little fragment of mud to me. Yeah. What were you spotting? When you what I saw just down here. So first of all, I was looking for the area. So I'm looking for an area which is kind of uh, slightly um, small bits of gravel, um, small metal items. So in fact, first of all, I saw something here, which was lead, and that led me to, to see that. And all I saw was like half of that poking out from the, uh, from the gravel. But when you've been doing this a while, I've been doing this a couple of years, when you've been doing it for a while, you get your eye in and you, you, your eye becomes accustomed to looking for certain shapes like circles. Um, yeah, I'm really amazed. I'm pretty sure that's a token, but I want to clean it up to make sure. Have you got some water with you? Or yeah. Down to the river? Yeah. It's been a day of wonders, as much about what we can't see as what we can. Later, I get a message from Tom. It's taken five hours of coaxing the treasure back to life with a carbon fibre brush, but it eventually reveals its secret. Thrillingly, 
It's not a token, but a James I farthing, dated 1615 to 1622, making it the oldest coin that Tom's ever found. He sends me a picture. The dull fleck of mud has been restored to gleaming metal, the delicate markings of a crown clearly visible. It's taken a few knocks in its life, but is all the more poignant for that. Once again, the river has pushed up to the surface yet another fragment of long-buried past. I had set out, armed with a tattered map, to discover what lies beneath the streets. But I found myself descending deeper into the layers of my own life than I had expected, from the trauma of losing a parent to the uncanny joy of becoming one myself. I pull out the map one final time. London is unforgiving. The map is a brittle relic, mangled, torn to pieces, and yet, I think, I've hardly even scratched the surface. The chalice and the basin, the invisible river, a hole in the city. To survive, wrote Umberto Eco, you must tell stories. These are mine. <laughs>